5% of the people manipulate the other 95% What do these manipulators know that the rest of US don't? Have you wondered why some people nearly always get what they want from other people, while you can only manage to do so every now and then? I certainly have, and that question had badgered me for years. Why can one person close the big business deal where 95% of the people who tried have failed? Why can some men charm and manipulate women into almost anything, when others couldn't get the time of day from them? Why do certain women seem to get anything they want from men? Surely it comes down to the fact that these people are shrewd in the art of manipulating and handling people. But how do they do it? What are their techniques? As an answer, this book reports the tactics these manipulators use to get what they want in business situations as well as in their personal lives much of it in their own words. And it's all tried and true street wisdom, not the kind of thing you customarily read in books. As a result, you'll find it natural to put these tactics to work getting what you want from people. They're more comfortable in action, anyway, than they are lying dormant on the written page. The sole criterion, does it work? Any method I report here can be judged by only one criterion, does it work well enough to get me what I want? These tactics need not be moral, inspiring, or philosophically sound. They just have to work. Otherwise the manipulators who tutored me in the art of people handling would have long ago discarded them. What remains is the distilled street WISDOM of people who either prospered or starved according to their ability to persuade others against their will. I believe their straight from the jungle techniques will work better for you than the ivory tower, armchair theorizing done by most books on the subject. Necessity forced me to turn to some rather unorthodox characters as sources. For this book on money pollution, I'd already exhausted the more respectable alternatives by taking a master's degree in advertising. But studying Madison Avenue's methods in detail taught me very little. I found that depending on college and books to teach me how to handle people was like going to church to learn how to sin. They just didn't seem to know much about it. Not until I put myself square in the middle of streetwise hustlers, manipulators, and con artists did I gain a working grasp of manipulation. In the process my shady tutors conned me out of considerable money. But I emerged after a year well versed in the art of extracting what I want from people. Learning the art manipulators and con artists flock to Boomtown's W here the money comes easy and plentiful, and then move on when the prosperity plays out. Houston, Texas, was just such a boomtown in the early 1970s as the energy shortage in the rest of the country pumped a deluge of easy dollars into this city built on oil. By moving to Houston, I had no trouble contacting con artists, because hordes of their numbers roosted in the bars there. Shortly after I arrived there, I took an apartment with Hardy, a habitual drunk who, when sober, is probably the most masterly manipulator I have ever known or expect to know. Hardy was panting hot on the heels of a cafe waitress he had chased into town. He had just departed Mobile, Alabama, in favor of Houston when the easy money had played out in Dixie. The walking personification of the silver-tongued devil, Hardy could talk anybody into nearly any thing women included. And he had successfully hawked everything from stock to land to encyclopedias door to door. But despite the fact that he always made fabulous money, I doubt that Hardy ever worked over three weeks at a stretch before one of his drinking sprees got him fired. He was my major tutor while I studied manipulation. We soon added another charlatan, who was eventu ally to Golmi of a considerable amount of money, to our living arrangement. He had drifted into town from Dallas, Texas, as that city joined the rest of the country in the recession of the 1970s. 
Next door to our apartment lived a shyster from California who claimed to be a millionaire's son, and who had never done the proverbial honest day's work in his life. He had either stolen or conned someone out of everything he owned. The man had so many aliases and bogus pieces of identification that I never did figure out his real name. Finally I enlisted as visiting lecturers on the subject of manipulation two con artist friends of the Dallas man. One had abandoned his New York environs for Houston due to the recession back east, and the other was a hot check artist from El Paso, Texas. These made up my complement of experts in the art of people handling. Bear in mind that none of these men fit the category of the dangerous criminal. As far as I know, there wasn't a criminal record in the bunch. Although none except Hardy Demon straight an inkling of honesty, they didn't turn their fast bucks by outright thievery. Instead they generally made their money by using people with a jewel cutters. Precision. Mostly by selling them cars, stock, land, or possibly a completely worthless item at exorbitant prices all the while convincing their hapless dupe that they were doing him a favor. Nor do I mean to imply that the average person would find these men despicable. Certainly a modicum of charm is essential to the success of any manipulator. And they had plenty of it. In fact I've never been charmed as quickly by a group of people. With only one exception they were all hilarious storytellers. Almost any normal person would be quite taken by them, at least until their ruthless nature reared its ugly head. But by that time it was usually too late. Women as a rule also found them irresistible, so you can imagine that they kept up a constant parade of females in and out of our apartment. In fact Hardy was so confident of his abilities as a latter-day Casanova that he paid for a motel room before he went out cruising the bars to pick up women. The key to manipulation during my year of this near-cockroach existence, I discovered the key to the mystery of manipulation, a thorough understanding of human nature. First the manipulator must grasp an intimate understanding of human nature. Then he exploits these deeply ingrained human tendencies, instincts, and weaknesses. In the course of this book, I start with the basic traits of human nature and describe the tactics manipulators use to capitalize on them. You can experience their methods by proxy as you read about them. After that you should find it easy to apply them to the situations where you need manipulation. Because the ever-present traits of human nature are universal, once you understand how to exploit them in one situation, other applications come naturally. Learn the techniques quickly. I hope that by reading this book, you'll learn to harness the considerable power of human nature to get what you want without having to pay the dues that such an ability usually demands. These tactics are easy to learn from someone who's willing to teach you, but figuring them out on your own through trial and error would probably take a lifetime. I hope this book cuts your period of trial and error to an absolute minimum, or possibly eliminates it altogether. Figuring out the tactics of people handling on your own is usually a syrup slow process. It's hard because these techniques run contrary to what you're used to doing. At times you'll have to learn to make yourself shut up when your instincts are goading you to scream at him. Or you may have to feign disinterest when your insides plead, tell him you're to parade for his business. As a result of these unaccustomed stances manipulation often requires of you, only a handful of people around 5% by my estimate ever learn to get what they want from other people. The other 95% just plod along following their natural instincts, unable to tell why they nearly always come out on the short end of situations. I venture to guess that these people, frustrated by their personal failure, flock in droves to John Wayne movies. There they get their vicarious satisfaction by watching the Duke, by golly, see that things are damn well done his way. 
Unfortunately Wayne's clenched jaw method of riding his gut instincts to victory only works on the silver screen, not. In reality, a person simply can't follow his impulses and still get what he wants from people. Impulses are a fool's compass. Finally I must confess that few of the techniques in this book represent original thoughts of my own. As a reporter I mostly relate what the old hands in the manipulative art taught me. I'm giving you advice from people who are much more clever than I am. In a sense, I let them take the years of hard knocks necessary to develop these tactics, and paid as few dues as possible myself. I would have undoubtedly been 20 years developing them on my own. Also, in my role as a reporter, I only describe what works not what is moral. These tactics aren't either moral or immoral. Like most powerful tools, they can be used for either good or bad ends. For instance, Lyndon Johnson, a master in the use of political manipulation, used the same tactics to gain the passage of good civil rights laws as he used to marshal support for his questionable Vietnam policies. You see, how you use these methods determines whether they will be right or wrong. Undoubtedly there's a great potential for abuse inherent in these techniques, I can only hope that you'll apply them toward decent ends. I also trust that the publicity this book gives the methods of manipulators will awaken some of the gullible people in the world from their trances. Then maybe they can defend themselves against being used by these ruthless individuals. Tactic 1 character types to watch out for tips that tell you you're about to be taken during the time I lived among the five con artists, they lied to me and gulled me of so much of my money that I was forced to cultivate cunning to survive. In a situation where the clever ones eat the gullible, developing wariness isn't a matter of choice. Luckily Hardy helped me by providing the kind of knowledge that all but veteran manipulators are ignorant of. Hardy taught me to recognize the subtle markings of a situation that betray a well-laid deceit. If you detect these tip-offs in a situation, you should develop cold feet, and become mule-stubborn about releasing any money to a person who shows these signs. In fact you probably should show him the door, and end your association with him altogether. Watch out for those who protest too much. Remember Shakespeare's methinks thou doth protest too much? In other words, you've said it so many times that you make me suspect you're lying about it. Note the striking parallel between Shakespeare and this situation, where I took a small financial beating. As I entered my apartment one night, my roommate told me that Hardy had just called me from jail. He'd been arrested for public drunkenness. Since Hardy considered me his only real friend in the world, he asked me to come and post bail for him. Hardy begged me to hurry because he claimed to be in a standing room only cell with a bunch of stinking, vomiting slobs. Hardy was always meticulous about his personal cleanliness, and he insisted on a hospital clean apartment, so I knew he must be enduring a living hell. But I also suspected that the filthy jail might prove excellent therapy for his desire to get drunk in the future. A sloppy, heaving deterrent. You'll never regret this. Just as soon as I get the money, I'll see that you're paid back. You just don't know how much I appreciate this, were Hardy's grateful words. He told me this as we walked away from the jail after I bailed him out. But despite this bountiful outpouring of assurance on his part, I never received a dime of the money. He left town still owing me $200. Anytime the other person stresses something too much, the street-educated mind begins to doubt him. Often this protesting too much provides learned ears a telltale clue that the other party is purposely misleading him. When a liar is pulling a fast one, 
He often soothe talks you in a too reassuring, too demonstrative way. Uncomfortable about his lie, he nervously overcompensates for his lack of substance. When a person tells you over and over how he's going to make money for you on a deal, and pats you on the back saying, I want to see you get everything you've got coming. To you, watch out. He's probably patting you on the back so he can feel a soft place to put the knife in. If you stand to gain a lot from a deal a person proposes, the terms of the deal will usually speak for themselves without his droning on and on about your potential benefits. Look out if he repeats I say repeats what you stand to gain over and over. If a person proposes a deal, he must have some dash thing to gain from it, or he wouldn't waste his breath. And you can bet that the more the other party harps on about making you money, the more he stands to gain from the deal at your expense. A person who proposes a deal with terms that favor you doesn't feel a need to sell it excessively. He knows that good terms speak for themselves. So he assumes something of a take it or I eve it. Stands. The same dynamics that are at work in your busyness dealings also show up in your personal relationships. A person you can trust doesn't need to remind you of it. His or her behavior in the relationship will speak for itself, if he can be trusted. If a person feels a need to remind you of his trustworthiness, he's probably trying to use you. Every con man who ever built me out of money took pains to remind me that I could trust him before he did it. Here I give you their exact words, party, $200, you'll never regret this. Just as soon as I get the money, I'll see that you're paid hack. I've always paid you everything load you, which was true, except for the last $200 that I never received a dime of. The Dallas man, $800, I'll explain this one later Rick, just tell me, have I ever failed to pay you a penny load you? No, except for the last 80,000 pens you owed me, none of which I ever saw again. Con man from New York, $40, I'll pay you for these long distance calls the minute you get the phone hill. You can count on me. He made those calls on my phone while I was at work, and W hen I got the phone hill, he denied owing me for them. So I never saw the money. Hot check artist from EI Paso, Texas, $0, Rick, I'd never cheat a friend. I realized that he had an easy out when he decided not to pay me. I no longer be classified as a friend, and he didn't prom ISE me that he wouldn't cheat an enemy. So I hooted at his $I25 loan request. Surely you've grasped the moral of the story, when a person tells you several times that you can trust him, or if he tells you how much he's going to do for you, panic and run. In no case should you enter into any dealings with him that involve legal tender. Similarly you'll run into people who protest too much in your private relationships that don't involve money. As just one example, if you're a woman and you meet a man who claims to be a strong supporter of women's liberation, you might suspect that something is afoot. Men don't naturally assume such a strong affirmative position on women's rights. So you should wonder whether the one who does it is trying to use you. I've heard several women complain about men attempting to fast talk them this way. If a man really feels this way, his behavior in the relationship should speak for itself. Then he shouldn't feel any nervous need to remind you of it or to compensate with words for his lack of substance. One way to know whether you're dealing with a trustworthy person Hardy used a common sense tactic for sizing up a person's trustworthiness, he listened to that person tell the same story twice. As he listened, his mind carefully tape recorded all the details to see if they matched in both versions. Then he could tell how consistent the two stories were. This degree of consistency was his gauge of a person's honesty. 
If a person relates a story differently each time he tells it, you're probably dealing with an untrustworthy liar. Habitual liars soon get so used to changing stories to fit the purpose at hand that they often forget how they told the story the first time. There's another closely related clue that should tell you a person's too crooked to deal with. If you ever hear a person you trust lie to someone else, it's time you cancelled your trust. Hardy told me, if a man lies to somebody else, he'll lie to you. What makes you believe he'll think any more of YOLL down the line when it'll suit his purpose to lie to you? You see, people live by an internal code they have. If their code lets them lie to an enemy, they'll do the same to a friend when it will get them something they want. People basically treat their friends the same way they treat everybody else. After all, it's easy to reclassify a friend as an enemy when he gets in the way of something you're after, isn't it? Never trust a person who lies to somebody else, but says he won't lie to you because you're a pal. Your pal status isn't set in concrete, you know. Most of the users and con artists I lived around lied this way casually and as naturally as they breathed. So you should be wary of dealing with people who don't stick pretty close to the truth in every situation. They're likely to be ruthless users. And Hardy's tactic can tip you off to who these people are. Beware of people who once had money but lost it. Nearly every con artist I ever met had amassed a great deal of wealth, but bad luck had robbed him of it at least to hear him tell it. The Dallas man, who later conned me out of $800, claimed to have once been a millionaire. Hardy claimed to have once had a great deal of money. And the California con man, who lived next door to me, claimed that his father was a millionaire. But despite all this alleged money in their backgrounds, none of these men seemed able to come up with his rent consistently at the beginning of the month with the exception of Hardy, whose pockets were usually swollen with money. Obviously most of these riches to rags stories would prove pure fiction if a person investigated them. But they do serve a valuable purpose to the street-educated listener. They're a dead giveaway that you're dealing with a charlatan. Of course I'm not saying that no honest man has ever lost his wealth. But even if this is the case, you're smart to avoid any financial dealings with him anyway. If you hear this old song and dance from someone, you're probably dealing with a con artist who's setting you up to play the dupe. A large percentage of the world's con. Artists use this line to give people confidence in the idea that a once rich man has made money before, and can do it again for them. Even if a person you know is honest hands you the richest rags line, you'd be foolish to take financial advice from him. If he knows how to handle money, why did he lose all of his? When a man who's rich now tells you how to invest your money, you might want to scoop up his advice. Chances are he knows how to make money better than a broke man does. For instance, the Dallas man claimed to have been a millionaire before the recession killed his business. And at one time he tried to convince me to buy a used car he heard about for $300. He said I could resell the car for $700 easily within the week, thereby more than doubling my money. After I declined the deal, he somehow got his hands on $300 and bought the car himself. But this gold mine on wheels cost him $400 in repairs the first two weeks he owned it. And he wound up having to keep it because he couldn't recoup the money he had tied up in it. So much for taking financial advice from people who either did have or claim to have had a fortune, then lost it. A dead giveaway that you're dealing with an incompetent the educational world has a word for a teacher who overlooks the important ideas in a student's paper, and chooses to criticize instead a misplaced comma or some such trivial detail. He is called a pedant. The business jungle also has a term for a person who acts this way. It's a failure. 
The person who emphasizes details and fails to take care of the most important things first can only fail in the business world. In every business I've seen, you can't take care of all the situations that need attention, no matter how hard you work. So the shrewd person lets the non-vital details go and concentrates on taking care of the crucial problems. For example, an intelligent manager takes care of sales, the thing that makes a profit, and lets strict enforcement of the dress code go. After all, the most stringently enforced dress code in the world never made a dime in profit for a business. A person can't satisfy all the demands on his time. So when you see someone emphasizing minor details, it's a dead giveaway that he's an incompetent. While he's squandering his time on the non-essential, you can bet the essential is going undone. As ridiculous as this behavior looks on paper, you'll find it surprisingly common in the business world. When you see these kinds of perverted priorities in one of your business associates, don't hitch your wagon to his star even if he's your boss. This person is bound to be a failure. And if the two of you are associated too closely, you could go down with him. My first boss fell into this category. Immediately after I attended one of his sales meetings without a tie, he bared his teeth and chewed me out royally for my appearance. But although he enforced white glove standards of appearance on his sales force, he somehow failed to notice that, far more importantly, all of his salesmen were losing respect for him. Less than one month after I received my dressing down from him, he had been fired. To the business sharp and I, his misplaced priorities would have foretold his failure. Likewise, a few years back, I was named manager of a restaurant to replace a man who had just been fired. It seems that the fired manager had forgotten that the customers paid his salary. As a result, he emphasized jobs like keeping the kitchen clean over his whole reason to be serving customers good food. Such upside-down priorities signal a lack of judgment that inevitably brings on failure in the business world. So you're better off to steer clear of business associations with this kind of incompetent.